Well, please turn in your Bibles to the book of uh, Lamentations, and this morning we shall be looking at Lamentations chapter 5, the, the fifth and uh, final chapter in this uh, short book, which was written um, in the wake of the terrible destruction and devastation that was uh, brought upon God's people in the year 587 by the uh, Babylonian forces, leading to the utter destruction of the city and of the temple. And in the series of laments, the poet, who I think really probably was Jeremiah, um, leads God's people in lamenting to the Lord and in trying to um, to make sense of, of all that has happened in the light of their uh, covenant relationship uh, with the Lord. And so this morning, as I say, we, we come to the fifth and final chapter of this book. So let us hear the word of the Lord. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill. And boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate. The young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, even though you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Well, this fifth and final poem in the book of Lamentations is a sustained act of prayer. Here we see the poet, as I say, probably Jeremiah, uh, leading God's people 
in pouring out their hearts to the Lord. That's what we have here. We have God's people pouring out their hearts before the Lord. The previous four laments, they're punctuated by direct appeals to God, but they are, for the most part, spoken in the third person, or as in the case of chapter 3, in the first person. But, but here in this fifth and final poem, we, we see this weeping poet bringing his anthology of heart-wrenching lamentations to a close in a, in a prayer that is addressed in its entirety to the Lord. This is us pouring our hearts out before you in this fifth and final poem, O Lord. Hear us as we do so. And here we see uh, the poet as he leads God's people in pouring out their hearts in prayer to the Lord, saying three main things to the Lord, each of which begins quite helpfully with the letter R. Here he says, remember, reign, and restore. Remember us, verses 1 to 18. You reign over us, verse 19. And then finally, restore us, restore us to yourself. First of all then, remember Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us, verse 1. Look and see our disgrace. Here the poet wants the Lord to take note of his people's disgrace. He wants the Lord to to be mindful of the, the shame, the dreadful shame that they are suffering, having been uh, invaded uh, by by the Babylonians. And then the poet proceeds to, to lay out before the Lord in really quite painful and painstaking detail the various aspects and elements of their shame and their disgrace. He highlights in the first place the political shame that they are having to endure. The land of Judah has been conquered, verse 2. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. They're now ruled by a foreign nation. They're now under the the control of these despised outsiders, these unclean Gentiles. And as a result of this Babylonian invasion, what do God's people say? They say in verse 3, we have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. In other words, we're no longer a strong and secure and special nation. No, now we're, we're just like the weakest and the neediest and the most oppressed members of society. That's what we're like now as a result of the Babylonian invasion. We're like widows and orphans. God's people were suffering severe political shame and they were also suffering severe economic shame. Now, as we go on in the poem, we see that they have to pay for basic commodities like water to drink and and wood for fuel, verse 4. Now they are pushed to exhaustion by their military uh, overlords, verse 5. Now they have to make uh, grubby deals with former enemies like Egypt in order to get enough food, verse 6. 
Now they've been reduced to the lowest possible status. Not just slaves, but slaves of slaves, verse 8. Slaves rule over us. Now they are forced to try to get bread at the risk of their lives, verse 9. And even though the siege is now over, uh, disease and hunger continue to stalk the land, verse 10. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. And this unbearable economic and political shame was made all the worse by the deep social shame that God's people were suffering. Women being raped in Zion, verse 11. Princes being tortured, perhaps even executed, verse 12. Elders being shown no respect whatsoever. Strapping young men being made to do the kind of work that was normally reserved for for slaves, verse 13, grinding at the mill. Old men no longer having any authority at all. They've left the city gate. And young men, well, the innocent joys of youth have been cruelly snatched away from them. Verse 14. Here do you see how we have this this catalogue of, of shame being described for us. This catalogue of shame, political shame, economic shame, social shame, and how this, this shame that has been brought upon God's people graphically and painfully portrays the total breakdown of Judean society. That's what we have here. Here we see that from the, from the very top right down to the very bottom, the entire fabric of of the covenant community has been ripped apart. Ripped apart. Totally destroyed. And the result is, verse 15, that the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The heart of God's people, verse 17, has become sick and their eyes have grown dim. Why? Because... And this summarizes it all because verse 18, Mount Zion lies desolate. Mount Zion, once beautiful in elevation, once the joy of all the earth, Psalm 48. Mount Zion now lies desolate. It's in ruins, fit only for jackals to prowl over it. And why has this happened? Why has such disgrace befallen Judah? Why are they suffering so much shame? Well, as we've seen in previous weeks, it's, it's because of their sin, their rebellion, their wickedness, their evil. And such, such sin has been rampant for generations. Verse 7, our fathers sinned. And are no more. And we bear their iniquities. This sin, this rebellion, this wickedness. It goes back generations. And it's not as though this present generation is innocent. 
that they are suffering unfairly because of their father's sins. No, not at all. This present generation has been all too eager to participate in such sin and wickedness and rebellion. Verse 16, woe to us, for we have sinned. It was Judah's persistent disobedience that brought God's woe upon his people. It was their defiant unbelief. It was their willful, uh, hard-hearted, stiff-necked rebellion and sin that brought such deep and painful shame upon them. And... Here we are reminded, aren't we? We are reminded in, in painful and painstaking detail of the, the shame that sin inevitably brings. Sin is the most shameful thing. It was the first thing, wasn't it, that Adam and Eve felt after they had, uh, had uh, eaten the, the, forbidden, the forbidden fruit. The first thing that they felt was shame. They knew that they were naked. And they tried to cover up their shame by sewing fig leaves together and loincloths. But they couldn't cover their shame themselves. Sin is the most shameful thing. And sin always, always, always brings shame upon us. And it is their shame, it is their disgrace that the poet wants the Lord to remember Remember the shame, remember the disgrace that has befallen us. Remember, not in the sense of, of, of recalling to mind something that you've previously forgotten. Of course, he's not, he's not using the word in that sense. Rather, he's saying, remember in the sense of, of taking action on this matter that I am calling you to remember. That's what he's saying here. I want you to remember what we are suffering, the disgrace and the shame, so that you will take action, O Lord. A bit like way back in the past when you heard the groaning of our forefathers. When they were slaves in Egypt. You heard their groaning. And you remembered the covenant that you had made with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And you then took action to rescue our fathers from their slavery and their shame in Egypt. Will you not again deliver us? Will you not initiate a new exodus? That's... That's the gist of what he's saying here. He is appealing for God to act. See our shame. Look at what we're suffering. Not for the sake alone of seeing and looking at it, but so that you will then rescue us and deliver us. This is what the poet is crying out in the first 18 verses. Please take away our shame. Deliver us. Even though we know, we know that you've, you've justly punished us because of our, our persistent sin and disobedience. Please remember us. And it seems to me that the poet is, is confident that God will, that, that the Lord will remember them. And take action to take away his people's shame. And this brings me to my next point this morning. The second thing that the poet says in this sustained act of prayer is, 
you reign over us. Remember us, O Lord, and remember us as the one who reigns over us. He's just described the the awful, painful, dreadful disgrace that, that they are going through as a result of the Babylonian invasion. But then he makes this this remarkable and this wonderful confession of faith in verse 19 when he says but you O Lord reign forever your throne endures to all generations and what he's saying here is, is this he's saying yes we have been utterly defeated by the mighty Babylonian empire And yes, we have been put to shame by the enemy and how we feel that. But I know that this has happened not because, ultimately, of the superiority of Babylon and certainly not because of the superiority of the gods of Babylon. They don't exist. They are figments Of their imagination. No I know. The poet is saying. I know that what has befallen us. Has happened. According to the Lord's. Sovereign will. I know. That behind that hammer. Of Babylon. Lies the hand. Of our all powerful. And our almighty. And our all sovereign God. I know that. That he is on the throne in heaven. Not Nebuchadnezzar. He's been raised up and he'll fall down. I know that God is on the true throne in heaven. And that whilst the temple's been destroyed and our city's been destroyed and our whole nation has been destroyed, I know that God is indestructible. I know that he reigns forever. And no one will be able to topple him from his throne. It's a glorious statement of faith, isn't it? Surrounded as as the poet and the people are by death and by destruction. Here the poet, in great faith, powerfully affirms a core tenet of Israel's creed. That the Lord our God, he is one. And there is no other. And the Lord our God is sovereign. Absolutely sovereign over everything. And of course in the end, it's this great truth of God's unabridged, unqualified and absolute sovereignty that is really the only ground for hope, isn't it? It's the only ground for hope. And that's why the poet says what he does here in verse 19. That's why why he affirms this this core uh, tenet of the creed of Israel. He, he, He doesn't just state it for no reason. There's a a logic here to what the poet says. It's, It's the logic of faith. It goes like this. It's very simple logic. What he's saying here is that just as the Lord has sovereignly uh, raised up Babylon to punish us, rightly so, because of our disobedience, so the Lord is also absolutely sovereign enough 
to rescue us from our sorrow and from our shame. And it's, it's this truth, this truth of God's perfect sovereignty that gives the poet hope. When everything he sees with his eyes screams out hopeless, he has hope because he looks in faith to the God who is on the throne forever and who reigns to all generations. And this truth, brothers and sisters, should give you great hope as well. It should give to you despair-defeating, despair-quenching hope. When you suffer and sorrow, as you will, when you experience the shame of sin, as you will, when you perhaps cry out, as the, as the poet does in verse 20, saying, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Sometimes Christians think that and feel that. They've been utterly forsaken. When you cry out like that, it is the knowledge that the Lord reigns and that his throne endures to all generations. It is that knowledge that will fill you with strong Secure and unshakable hope. Because it's hope grounded on God. I remember a while ago reading some accounts of, uh, of people who lived uh, during uh, the Second World War. Who, um, who suffered uh, daily uh, bombing raids. Especially, of course, during the Blitz. And... Uh, city, London, lay in ruins. Everything was shattered. These people, they were surrounded every day by death and destruction. But what was interesting in the, in the accounts that I read was how so many of these people did not lose hope. They had what, what came to be called, I suppose, the Blitz spirit. And why? Why did they... Why did they not despair? At least a lot of them didn't. Why did they not lose hope? Well, it was because of who was sitting in 10 Downing Street. It was because Churchill was in charge. And they therefore knew that all would be well in the end. And how much more is that the case for for you as a Christian believer? Uh, Churchill was a great leader, but he's gone. He's no longer there. But God doesn't go. God doesn't vacate the throne in heaven. He's there forever. Ruling perfectly and powerfully and wisely and wonderfully. Your life could be in total ruins. Your family could be in total ruins. Your church could be in total ruins. Everything that you, that you see with your eyes could scream out to you, hopeless. Hopeless. But as a Christian, you can still have hope. Certain. Unshakable hope. Because of the Lord. Because the Lord reigns. Forever. Because His throne endures to all generations. And therefore you know, you know, that in the end, in the end, all will be well 
for God's people, especially because this all-sovereign God is also all good. Point number three. Restore. Restore us, O Lord. Restore us, verse 21, to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. It's interesting, I think, that at the start of the chapter, what's the poet asked the Lord to do? He's effectively asked the Lord to come, come down and to see them in their disgrace and in their shame and to act as a result. But by the end, there's this development in the poem. By the end, he's praying that the Lord would cause them to return to him. Lift us up to you, O Lord. Restore us to yourself. To yourself. Notice that. He doesn't pray at the end of his final poem for the enemies of God's people to be to be driven out of the land much as they would have loved that to happen. He doesn't pray for that. He doesn't pray for Jerusalem to be rebuilt, though it lies in ruins. That can wait for another day. He doesn't even pray for their suffering and, and, and their pain to come to an end, deep and sore though it is. No, what the poet prays for here at the conclusion, not just of this poem, but at the end of all five poems, is for God himself. That's who he longs for in the midst of this shame and suffering and sorrow. He longs for God. He longs to know again the presence of the Lord, his favour, his grace, his kindness. And he's fully aware that they do not deserve that. The ESV translates verse 22 with the word, unless, restore us to yourself unless you've utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. I'm persuaded that it would actually be better to translate that verse with the words, even though or even if. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, even though you've utterly rejected us and are exceedingly angry with us. I don't think here the poet is, is, is praying that the Lord would restore his people unless he's utterly rejected them and remains exceedingly angry with them. That, that for me injects uh, unwarranted uh, suspicion uh, into this final appeal for God to restore his people. And besides, besides, isn't one of the chief messages of the whole book of Lamentations, that God has indeed rejected his people. That he is indeed exceedingly angry with them. I mean, isn't that what the exile signified? God, God righteously, in righteous anger, uh, rejecting his people, sending them off into exile. No, it seems to me that what the poet is saying here, as he fully acknowledges the righteousness of God's anger, is this. He's saying, O Lord, even though you have rejected us at this time, and even though you are righteously, exceedingly angry with us, will you not yet restore us? To yourself, 
Will you not yet renew our days as of old? Will you not again have compassion on us? After all, after all, are you not the God who is steadfast in your love and whose mercies never come to an end? That is the note on which this anthology of heart-wrenching lamentations ends. Not the note of wavering uncertainty, but the note of hopeful expectation. I know you have rejected us, O God, and we have got exactly what we deserved. But I also know, and I hope with a certain hope, that you will restore us to yourself because that's what you've promised to do. That's what you've promised to do in your word. And you do not lie. You are the God, are you not, who is abundant in grace. You are the God, are you not, who shows mercy the hell-deserving sinners. I believe that you will restore us to yourself. And it seems to me, as we draw to a close, as we come to an end in our series in the Book of Lamentations, that this is really the truth that you most need to take to heart. Because isn't it the case that we're not so unlike the people of God during the time that Lamentations was written. We're living in exile like like they were. We're living, aren't we, in the land of sin and death. And we live in bodies of sin and death. That's where we are. This is where we're located. And, and in this, this world of, of sin and death, in our bodies of sin and death, we inevitably lament, inevitably. We mourn, we sorrow, we weep. We sometimes cry out in painful perplexity, why do you forget us forever, O Lord? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Perhaps some of you are crying that right now in your hearts. As Christians, we we do lament. We must lament. We must lament. There will be something wrong with us. Something unchristian about us if we did not lament. I believe that lamenting is so often a sign that the spirit of Christ lives in you. The spirit of that man of sorrows who lamented more than anyone else over the sad facts of sin and death. But as we rightly lament, we lament with hope. We are, as Christians, hope-filled lamenters. And that is because transcending the lamentable reality of our sin-stained existence as exiles, in this fallen world, transcending that reality is the glorious reality of, of God himself. He transcends 
over it all. And, and this is what gives the poet and every faithful Israelite hope. This and this alone is what gives them hope in the midst of their, their exile and their darkness. God gives them hope. God himself, their faithful, gracious covenant Lord. And it's the exact same truth and reality of God himself, your covenant Lord, that will give you hope in the midst of all of your sorrow and pain. Indeed, surely we can say, can't we, that, that we can have even more hope than the exiles of Judah could have in their day. Because as new covenant Christians, not only can we look back to the time when God did actually restore his people to the land after their exile. Seventy years after they were carted off to Babylon, they were back. He restored them. But far more importantly, and of course far more wonderfully, we can look up and we, we can look out to the one who took, took all of our sin. And took all of our shame with him to the cross. We can look out to the one that the temple of whose body was, was destroyed. Destroyed. As he suffered God's utter rejection. And God's exceeding anger instead of us. We can look out to him. The one whose, whose body was then raised up. In glory on the third day. We can look to, to Jesus. And we can say as we look to him with full assurance, my God has restored me. He has decisively restored me. He's restored us. And one day, he will bring to completion that glorious work of restoration. When he raises us up to live with him in redeemed and glorified bodies in the land where there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, but just perfect joy and perfect glory. That's, that's where we're going. That's where we're going. Now you lament, but one day you won't. You won't. Your weeping tarries for the night, but joy, resurrection joy, comes with the morning.